This morning, we are continuing with our study through the book of Acts. Today, we're going to be looking at a whole chapter, Acts chapter 22. We're at the point in the book of Acts where Paul has returned to Jerusalem after completing his third missionary journey. He felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to return to Jerusalem, very much wanted to be there in time for the Feast of Pentecost. But as he and his mission team journeyed to Jerusalem uh, from where they were over in Ephesus, Asia, and so forth, there were Christians all along the way who were trying to keep him from going to Jerusalem. There were pleadings to keep Paul from, from going there, and it really culminated when they were staying at Philip's house in Caesarea. Philip was one of the seven men who had been chosen to serve the Jerusalem church as a deacon back in Acts chapter 6. He's also a man that God used as an evangelist. Uh, we were uh, told in chapter 8 about how God used him to reach out in significant ways to the Samaritans. He was instrumental in leading an Ethiopian uh, to, uh, to Christ. Well, he ended up settling down in Caesarea, and Luke tells us that Philip had four unmarried daughters uh, who were prophetesses. Well, by even mentioning that, the implication is that they were giving warnings about what awaited Paul in Jerusalem, just like others had done as well. Well, then a prophet named Agabus came to Philip's house to speak with Paul. Agabus gave a very visual demonstration of the message. He took, he took uh, Paul's belt, he tied his hands, he tied his feet, and he said, this is what's going to happen to the person who owns this belt when he goes to Jerusalem. So it was a further confirmation that it was going to be bad when Paul went to Jerusalem. Well, after seeing this, after Agabus gave this illustration, all the people who were gathered at Philip's house, which included Luke, obviously, who wrote the book of Acts, um, they began pleading with Paul that he would not go to Jerusalem. Paul was very touched by their concern, but he would not change his mind. He was convinced this was something the Lord wanted him to do. Well, the believers stopped pleading and said, the will of the Lord be done. This was not just meant as a statement of kind of resignation, like whatever. It wasn't like that. This was actually a statement with substance behind it. This is a recognition that God is sovereign over all things. It was a recognition on their part that God, God's will is best. It was a submission to the fact that God's will is not always the same as our will. God's sovereign will is based on the perfect, complete, infallible wisdom of God. So it's right that believers should be content with that phrase, that the will of the Lord be done. But we all know that that does not mean everything is going to go smoothly. We live in a sinful world. We have seen so, many, so much evidence of that even in our own community this week. People oftentimes do sinful, foolish, wicked, wicked things, making sinful choices. Well, in Paul's case, the Lord had already made it clear uh, that the will of the Lord being done was going to include suffering and possibly even death on 
Paul's part. The believers at Philip's house were saying that they were trusting God with what happened to Paul. The perfectly wise Lord knows better than any of us. That's something that we, just, that we constantly have to remind ourselves of. So much we don't understand because of the sin and so forth. It's all kind of mixed here, but God is still sovereign. Well, even in the midst of this, knowing that there was so much that uh, in Paul's situation that he, everyone who was telling him over and over through the Spirit, this is going to be bad. You're going to suffer. The afflictions are going to be awful. You might even die. Paul says, well, I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So he's making the proclamation, Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life, no matter what happens. Hard things, painful things, discouraging things are not going to change the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, both these statements, will the Lord be done? I'm willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both those things illustrate very well what actually happened in Jerusalem when Paul went. Just to bring us up to date to where we are, Paul and his mission team, when the team, when they first got to Jerusalem, met with James, who was the, the head of the church at that point and the elders of the Jerusalem church. They talked about, just shared together about amazing things that God had done through Paul's ministry to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire and spent time glorifying God for that. They also talked about the fact that there were many, even said thousands of Jews in Jerusalem who had also believed. But there was a challenge connected with that because all of the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem are described as people who were zealous for the law. This means they were still practicing what has oftentimes been termed the ceremonial laws, including things like observing the Jewish feasts, offering sacrifices, circumcision, uh, food laws, various purification rites, things of that sort. They believed, these were believers, they believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Well, Jesus fulfilled all those ceremonial laws that, that, that those laws were pointing toward. Those laws had already served their purpose, but the temple was still standing in Jerusalem, so there was a strong pull to continue to participate in all of those things. So this illustrates just for us just the unique situation that this first century church was in. Those Old Testament ceremonial laws were pointing to the Savior to come. Well, when Jesus actually came to earth, the purposes of those laws were fulfilled. But the opportunity to continue to observe those laws for the Jews was still there, really primarily because the temple was still standing. But for the most part, and for the most part, they did continue to observe those laws. Well, at the same time, salvation is being offered to the Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Absolutely no requirement whatsoever to, fall, to, uh, to uh, hold to, to keep any of those ceremonial laws. They were saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Just like anyone is, Jew or Gentile. Well, many Jews, however, are having a hard time with Gentile believers having no connection with those ceremonial laws that were so important to them. And that led to them having a hard time with Paul because Paul was offering salvation strictly by faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It was a time when thousands were coming to faith in Christ all over the Roman Empire, Jew and Gentile alike, but there were challenges. 
Well, James and the elders suggested to Paul that, that, that Paul join with four men who were keeping a Nazarite vow in the temple, uh, men from their congregation, to join with them. And the rite really emphasized uh, holiness to the Lord. They suggested Paul join them, pay, for, pay their expenses. This would be a way to show doubters that Paul still had high regard for the law of Moses. So Paul did this. He was willing to accommodate the weakness and misunderstanding others had about his ministry. And the feeling was that it would remove uh, maybe some unnecessary hindrances to his gospel ministry uh, to both Jews and Gentiles. Well, when the time of the vow was nearly complete, some Jews from Asia who were there for Pentecost, just like Paul was, they recognized Paul. They saw him in the temple. He had had such an extensive ministry in Asia, so they knew exactly who he was, and they got mad when they saw him. Well, in Acts 21, 27 to 28, here's what happened. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people, uh, the law, and this place. And besides, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Well, he had not brought any Greeks into the temple. That was not true. But what they were saying was, besides that, they said, this man is preaching against the Jews, against us. This, uh, they were convinced that Paul was preaching against the law. They were convinced that Paul was preaching against the temple. Well, none of those things were true. But these Jews from Asia were so upset that they instigated a riot here in connection with the feast at Pentecost against Paul. They were beating him with every intention of killing him. Well, the Roman commander realized what was happening. He brought several hundred soldiers to, uh, to, to, to bring order things to order. They were able to get everything calmed down. They chained Paul between two soldiers, most likely is how that was done, began to take him back to the tower, which was connected there with the temple complex and uh, where their barracks were located. Well, as they were doing that, the Jews continued to press hard, trying to get at Paul. The soldiers finally had to lift Paul up to get, keep him away from this violent mob. Well, the Roman commander thought Paul must have been an Egyptian who had caused trouble in the past, and they never actually were able to catch him. Well, obviously, that's not who Paul was, and Paul said, no, that's not who I am. And then he asked for permission to speak to the people. So I want us to pick up in... Uh, Acts 21, verse 40, and then I'm going to read through chapter 22, verse 11. So when the commander had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren, and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. 
But it happened that I was, as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go on into Damascus, and there you'll be told all of what has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So from these verses, we see our first main point on your outline, and that's this. God made, or I'm sorry, Paul made good use of God's divine appointment, of God's divine appointment and spoke to the Jews who had just tried to kill him of his conversion. You've probably heard the phrase before, a divine appointment. It's the idea that, you know, that we recognize that God gives opportunities for us at times to especially speak an encouraging word, maybe even share the gospel uh, with someone. Sometimes we're kind of aware those appointments might happen. Other times they catch us completely off guard. But God does give those kind of opportunities. I would not be surprised if Paul already had a sense that the, that the suggestion that the Jerusalem elders would, had made was not going to work. He went along with it. He submitted to that. One thing we know very clearly, he was completely prepared for the fact that he was going to experience what was described to him as bonds and afflictions in Jerusalem. He may not have known exactly how it was going to happen, but he knew that God had ordained that for him. From all accounts, it seems that the beating he took from this mob was quite violent. And even when he, as we said, when he was rescued by the Roman soldiers, the Jews did not stop trying to get at him because the soldiers had to lift him out of their, out of their reach up to the steps. I mean, if it was me, I'd be trying just to catch my breath, just thankful I was still alive. I mean, you've got these thousands and thousands of people, and they're all out to kill you. I would be happy that that didn't happen. And we don't know what kind of injuries he's had. I'm assuming he was bloody. All kinds of bruises. I don't know if he had any broken bones. I don't know. He was beaten. He, they were beating him with the intention of killing him. But his thoughts turn immediately not to rage, anger, or even just glad I'm alive, his thoughts turn to this mob thinking, I'd like to talk to them. This is a divine appointment. They're all ready and looking at me. This is an opportunity. And he took it. Because you remember what he said? I'm ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. I serve him. That's what my purpose is, to serve him. And he was conscious of that even at the time when they were trying to kill him. But one of the things this reminds us of is that Paul had a great burden for the salvation of his fellow Jews. He had such a burden for his fellow Jews. We know that from the fact that every city that Paul went to, he always started his ministry first by going to the synagogue there, and he would continue to speak and talk with the people and testify to the Jews in the synagogue until he was forced to leave, which happened just about every time. 
By this time in his ministry, Paul had already written the letter to the Roman church. And it would be good to remind ourselves of some of the things that he said there because it tells us what's in his heart and I think what is motivating him as he is sharing in this particular situation over in Acts chapter 22. So here's what he says in Romans 9. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. He just talks about, I have sorrow. He describes it as an unceasing grief. It never goes away. An unceasing grief for his fellow Jews. He even says if it were possible, he would be willing to be eternally separated from Christ for this, if that would somehow benefit his fellow Jews. He says the same thing, basic thing over in chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I testify by them. They have a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. So basically, he's just saying, I really want to see them put their faith in Christ. I want them to recognize Jesus is the Christ um, and put their faith. They try to be righteous. They try to keep the law, but they fail miserably, just like everybody does. It's only in Christ that one can be righteous. Paul understands that is true for everyone, but he has a special burden for the Jewish people. So you can see that heart in Paul when he completely ignores the fact these people have just beaten him up and would have killed him if it had not been for the Roman soldiers. In fact, Paul goes out of his way to appeal to the Jews in the way he presents his message. He's in verse 1, he says there, hear my defense. That's where we get the word apologetics from. He's actually making a defense, a reasoned defense for his faith. And he's doing it in such a way to make sure he appeals to them at every place possible to help them understand. First thing he does, he speaks to them in Hebrew, which is the language of the Jews. That clearly got their attention. It says in verse 2, they became very quiet when he did this. I mean, they felt this guy was speaking against the Jews. He was against the Jews. Here he's speaking our language. And Paul gives so much attention to his Jewishness. He calls himself a Jew in verse 7, in verse 3. He was, says he was born in Tarsus, but he was brought up in Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel, who was the most preeminent teacher of the day, educated strictly, he says, according to the law, zealous for God. He was so zealous that he persecuted the way. In other words, he persecuted those connected with the Christian faith. So from this description, we know this next point, that Paul is an example of one who, though he was very religious, very religious, he was living in sinful disobedience to God. Paul makes it clear he was a very religious person. He received a detailed education in the Old Testament law. The word educated here speaks of a systematic, the systematic discipline of his education. When it says strictly according to the law, it speaks of the perfect manner, the exactness, precision of the education he received. There was what 
I, I saw described as a Pharisaic rigor to Paul's religious training. He could not have given any more attention to learning and living the law of God than he did. Paul had a zeal for serving and honoring God. He was the picture of someone who was religious to the extreme. And all the terms he used to describe himself are meant to make sure his Jewish audience understands that. He acknowledges that the people he is speaking to, they too are zealous for God. I doubt if any of them could top Paul's zeal, but he acknowledges they had the same kind of zeal he had. But Paul had a problem. Paul had a big problem. He did not believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. He understood the importance of the temple, obviously. He understood the importance of the priest, the sacrifices. But he did not believe that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all of those types that he knew very well about. He knew well the messianic promises of Isaiah and Micah and David and the Psalms. But he did not believe that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of those prophecies. He was very familiar with God's covenants with Abraham, with Moses, with David. He knew well about Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel, their prophecy of the new covenant. But he did not believe that these covenants were structured around the coming of Jesus Christ. So as a result, Paul considered the Christian faith to be blasphemy. His misplaced zeal for God led him to actively and ruthlessly persecute the Christian church. He says in verse 4, he persecuted this way to the death. Paul was zealous, but he was deceived. He was deceived by the sin of unbelief. Satan is okay with a person being zealous for religion, even zealous for God, if he will be zealous out of unbelief. Well, Paul's religious activity was a cover for a heart that just would not believe. He thought he could win God's favor by doing the things that he considered to be good works, but he was wrong. And if Paul had remained in this misguided, deceptive zeal, he would have suffered under the wrath of God for eternity, in spite of all his religious works. But thanks be to God, we see next that God graciously intervened. God graciously intervened in Paul's life to convict him of sin and bring him to saving faith in Jesus Christ. There was nothing in Paul's thoughts that, that had caused him to have any doubt that he was doing the right thing in persecuting the church. He was completely, thoroughly, sinfully deceived. No indication whatsoever that Paul was having second thoughts about whether Jesus was the promised Christ or not. He absolutely knew that he wasn't. Then the Lord intervened. While Paul was on his way to continue this persecution of the church in Damascus, Jesus Christ manifested himself personally to Paul. It was about noontime, the time of the day when the sun would be at its, at its, at its brightest. But the light of Christ dwarfed the light of the sun. Paul fell to the ground, blinded. While he was on the ground, Jesus Christ spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is a demonstration of what is sometimes called God's irresistible grace. In John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, this call from Jesus Christ is God's gracious drawing of Paul to salvation. Paul wasn't seeking Christ at all. He was going the opposite direction, but he was drawn to Christ. And it's not only about changing his mind about who Jesus was, but it's also a change of his heart. It's a change of his nature. At this time, Paul was born again. His life changed from the inside out. Immediately, Paul responds by saying, Who are you, Lord? So by the work of the Spirit, Paul recognized Jesus was Lord. And he submitted to him. In verse 10, he is given instructions by the Lord on what he was to do, and Paul obeyed. He was led into the city of Damascus because the light had blinded him, and that's where the Lord gave Paul further instructions. This is really just a wonderful picture of how God brings salvation to any sinner, anyone. Most people are not saved, brought to faith in such a dramatic way as Paul was. But any transformation of a person's heart that the Lord brings through his word is no less dramatic than the change that happened in Paul's heart. It's the same kind of just from darkness to light. It's the same thing. The only way to be right with God is to be born again by the Spirit. And none of us are good enough for God, no matter how religious we might be. Well, God provided Paul with a divine appointment then to testify to his fellow Jews of how the Lord had saved him. His hope was that God would use his testimony to bring many to faith in Christ. It's also a really good reminder for us that no matter how outward religious we are, we all have a, a need of a life-changing faith in Jesus Christ. I was, uh, I've shared this many times, but I was, it was just before my senior year in high school that the Lord brought this home to me. I'd been active in my church from the time I was in the nursery, went to every possible meeting at every possible time. There was no way I could have been more active in my church all those years than ever I was. I was an outwardly moral young man, but Jesus Christ was not my Lord. I was very religious, but Jesus Christ was not my Lord. Well, the, God changed my heart to understand that. But if Jesus Christ is not your Lord, then he's not your Savior either. He is Lord and Savior, not Lord or Savior. Well, Paul had more he wanted to say to his fellow Jews. So let's pick up in verse 12 here in Acts 22 and read through verse 21. Uh, a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. And why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. He said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, what we see in these verses is that Christ was not only calling Paul to salvation, he was calling him to serve him in a special way, a unique way. So our second main point is this. Paul's call to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ was a call to serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One of the things we've mentioned before that Paul is very intent on communicating is that his commitment to Jesus as the Christ is a continuing commitment to the God of Israel, the one true God. The Jews needed to hear this. They're deceived about who Jesus Christ is. Therefore, they're deceived about what a true relationship with God was all about. No one knows that better than Paul. Well, in Damascus, the Lord brings Ananias to talk with Paul. Paul describes him in verse 12 as a man who was devout by the standard of the law. So he was devout not only in a Christian sense, but also in his commitment to the law of Moses. And he adds that Ananias was well spoken of by the Jews in Damascus. So Ananias had not ceased to be a committed Jew when he believed in Jesus Christ. Paul very much wants these Jews he is speaking to to take note of that. Well, God used Ananias to speak to Paul, to, to heal Paul's blindness. And he then spoke to Paul in a prophetic way to tell him what God had called him to do. Look again at verse 14 to 16. He says, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear and utter it from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Why do you delay? Get up and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. So here we see then that it was the God of the patriarchs that appointed Paul to serve as an apostle of Christ. To serve as an apostle of Christ. So Ananias is very clear that Paul is being called by the God of our fathers. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul is not being called to serve a different God when he serves Christ. It's the same God. It's the same God that these Jews were so zealous to serve. This is also Paul's specific call to serve Christ as an apostle. It was those, of course, who served Christ as his disciples who were then given the ministry of serving as apostles, the called out ones. Well, Paul was not one of the twelve. We know that. But this Damascus call was meant to put him on the same level with the other apostles. Paul was chosen to know the Lord's will in a very direct and personal way. That's unique. On the Damascus road, Paul was able to personally see the risen Christ. He was able to hear words directly from his mouth. And the, these things happened to put Paul on the same level as the other apostles. He was also given the ministry of being a witness for the risen Christ. And it's, it's important to note here, he was not going to testify of Christ based on what he had heard others say. Paul was going to testify from his personal acquaintance and from direct communication from Christ. He was, a, he was, he was testifying of the things that Christ had told him to testify of. So this commission was given to Paul to be a witness for him to all men. Of course, that's going to include not only Jews, but also Gentiles. 
Paul doesn't specifically mention the ministry of the Gentiles at this point. That's going to come in in a few, in a few verses. Well, about three years later, in between verse 16 and verse 17, there's a three-year gap. So about three years after Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road, he returns to Jerusalem. Luke told us about that return back in Acts chapter 9, but it doesn't tell us about what Paul shares here. So in the verses 17 to 21, we learn about how the Lord emphasized Paul's ministry to the Gentiles in a very special way. We see in these verses then this next point that the Lord Jesus Christ sent Paul to minister to the Gentiles through a vision in the temple in Jerusalem. It's really amazing just how uniquely Jewish everything about Paul's conversion and call to ministry was. And, he, and since he's given this apologetic, this defense of his faith and his calling, he's doing that so they will, will be able to relate and understand. Everything is so Jewish. It's amazing. So in these verses, he talks about the time when he spent in the temple after he had returned to Jerusalem. At this point, like I said, he'd been committed to Jesus Christ for three years, and he still takes time to pray in the temple when he returns to Jerusalem. And it's at this point that Paul talks even more specifically, of course, about his call to the Gentiles. And what's amazing is that this call... This call is emphasized while he's praying in the temple in Jerusalem. The ministry to the Gentiles happened, was given to him in the temple of the Jews. So when these rioting Jews accused Paul of speaking against the Jewish people, against the law, against the temple, they were wrong. He wasn't doing that. While praying in the temple, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him in a special divine manner. Christ directly communicated to Paul at this time. He tells him it's time to get out of Jerusalem because the Jews were not going to be willing to accept his testimony about Jesus. Well, Paul talks then about his, what his concerns were about leaving Jerusalem. Uh, they, he, he says, but Lord, they know how zealous I've been. I mean, they, they know how active I was, it's even, in, even in Stephen's martyrdom. This is not really a formal argument where Paul is trying, trying to change the Lord's mind. It really is just, I think, it's just him expressing his desire to have further opportunity to witness to his fellow Jews. But Jesus makes it clear to him, it's time. It's time for you to leave Jerusalem. And he says Christ was sending him directly to the, Jew, to the Gentiles. And once again, Paul makes it clear that this is done in the context of him serving the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and Jacob. He is in Jerusalem, worshiping in the temple, committed to his Jewish brothers, but it was while he was in the temple that he was sent to the Gentiles. And even this is consistent with what God has historically done. For example, Samuel in the Old Testament was called as a prophet while he was serving in the temple. It was when the prophet Isaiah was worshiping in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6 that the Lord called him into ministry. When Joseph and Mary took the infant Jesus to be circumcised in the temple, there was a man there named Simeon who prophesied about the fact that this child, who was Jesus, would be the light of revelation to the Gentiles as well as the people of Israel. So Paul's in good Jewish company here. That also happened in the temple. But the Jews didn't see it that way. 
we are told tragically that the Jews rejected God's calling of Paul. Verse 22 and 23, they listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust in the air, and the commander ordering to be brought back. So they immediately reject the idea that Paul was divinely called to serve the God of their fathers in this way. And they especially rejected his call to go and preach directly to the Gentiles. They start shouting that this man should not even be allowed to live on the face of the earth. They express their rage by throwing, a, throwing their cloaks in some manner. They were throwing dust up in the air. They're causing a big stink about this. Well, this response really is not called for based on what Paul has just shared with them. But it's a further example of how deceived they were. Just like Paul, they believed they were serving God when in reality they were living in sinful disobedience and unbelief regarding the Messiah that he had sent. He had promised them and sent to them. Paul was faithful to share the gospel. That's what we're all called to do. We need to be aware of the divine appointments that he gives us. But we also have to remember the results aren't up to us. We are called to be faithful to serve, like Paul was, and he will bring about fruit. He will bring about the results as he sees fit. The results of this were a riot. <laughs> that's not what Paul was hoping for. But that's what God saw to be fit at this point. Paul was faithful. The results are not up to us. The results are up to God. Well, there's one more thing I want to call your attention to in this passage in point number three, and that's this. God in his providence provided Paul with what he needed to minister to both Jews and Gentiles in the Roman Empire. God in his providence did this. So the providence of God shows up in several ways here. First, as we noted earlier, it was in God's providential will that Paul made this trip to Jerusalem to begin with. It was also in his providential will that Paul was warned about and was told that he was going to suffer bonds and affliction when he went there. It was also in God's providence to cause Paul to be born into a Jewish home. It was in his providence for Paul to be educated in Jerusalem under the most notable Jewish teacher of the day, Gamaliel. It was in God's providence for Paul to learn Hebrew as a part of his strict training. And it was his ability to speak Hebrew that he had learned decades ago that caused the Jewish mob to give him quiet attention as he spoke. It was in God's direct gospel providence that Jesus Christ appeared personally to Paul on the road to Damascus. It was in God's providence that a committed Jewish believer named Ananias just happened to be in Damascus. This was the man that God used to confirm Christ's call on Paul as an apostle. And it was in God's providence that Christ appeared to Paul while he was praying in the temple while he was in Jerusalem. And again, providentially, this call of Christ on Paul's life was consistent with what the Lord had done with other men, Jewish men like Samuel, Isaiah, Simeon, in earlier times. God's providential hand is really all over this. When you talk about the will of the Lord be done, His providential hand is just all over this. Well, let's read, there's, but there's more. So let's read the final verse. Let's pick up at verse 24, read to the end of the chapter. 
The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. Paul said, I was born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him, which meant to beat him mercilessly, mercifully, to those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him, and the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. On the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down to set them and set him before them. So the Roman commander is determined to find out why the Jews are so upset with Paul. He doesn't understand what's going on. And his way of doing that was to torture him with scourging. Torture him to the point that the idea was if you torture him long enough, he's going to spill his guts and say, here's what's really going. Here's who I really am. Here's what's taking place. That was their way of doing things. Before he could do that, Paul lets it be known that he's a Roman citizen. It was illegal to scourge a Roman citizen, especially when there was not even a charge that had been made against him. So Paul escapes this horrible scourging, and the commander determines to have Paul stand before the Sanhedrin. Well, how did Paul obtain this citizenship? The Roman commander says, I had to pay for mine. Well, he inherited it from his father. Now, it wasn't, he wasn't automatically a Roman citizen because of where he was born. That's not exactly the same as, it wasn't exactly the same as it is with us, you know, just being born in America makes you a citizen. It wasn't just because he was born there. It was because of who his parents were. Most likely, Paul's father had distinguished himself in some way with the Roman government and was given citizenship as a reward. We don't know what the details of that were, but we do know that God providentially used something his father did many years ago. But Paul is, by the way, around 60 years old at this point. That God providentially used something his father did many years ago to allow Paul to escape scourging at this point in his life. And as a result, he was able to stand before the Sanhedrin the next day, which is what he wanted to do. We need to have an eye to God's providence in our lives. We need to especially, I think, see how his providence relates to his church. So there's a quote here on your outline that I've taken from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And this is in modern English, by the way, so it's a little bit easier to read than the original. But it says this, the providence of God in a general way includes all creatures, but in a special way, it takes care of his church and arranges all things to its good special focus in God's providence on his church. Well, we see that we first we see God Christ's commitment to his church in what he says to Paul on the road to Damascus. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I mean, Christ is so one with his church that when his church is persecuted, 
It is as if Christ himself is being persecuted. We must never forget how deeply loved and cared for we are by the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you're persecuting me when you persecute my church. That's God providentially watching for and loving and caring for his church in a special way. We also see God's providence in taking care of his church and the way he converted Paul and called him to serve the church as his, as apostle. This was huge. There is so much of the New Testament that comes to us through the apostolic ministry of Paul. That in itself is Christ taking care of his church and arranging all things to the good of his church. It's hard to even imagine what it would be like if we didn't have the letters of Paul. Just so vital to our faith, vital to the church in every way. We are a blessed people. May his will be done. Lord, we want to thank you for these words. We thank you for this scripture. And again, this in itself is providential because uh, all the work that you did in Paul's life has now become beneficial and helpful to us. So thank you so much for these words, for this testimony, for these example that we see in Paul's life. Lord, I thank you for the example of how Paul recognized your providential work in his life. He was committed to you. And even in a time where he was going through horrible suffering, being beaten to a pulp, he still had a concern for the people and he wanted them to know Christ. Lord, help us to recognize the divine appointments that you've given us. There are times where it's right and appropriate for us to say something or to do something that is a, that is a, a special testimony to you in some way. Help us to be aware of those opportunities and to use them. And then trust you to give whatever fruit you choose to give. Lord, I want to thank you also for the example we see here of how you saved Paul. This was a man who was just as religious as you could get but he was completely lost and on his way to hell. Lord, help us to understand. Help us to see that ourselves. It's so easy just to be content with being a good person, but being a good person is not enough. We have to be completely perfect and righteous and godly, and there's no way we can do that. That's why Jesus Christ had to come, pay the price for our sin, and then grant us the gift of righteousness that we get by trusting in him. Thank you for this reminder and how gracious you were to intervene in Paul's life when he wasn't even considering that. You do the same thing for us. Thank you for how you've intervened in so many of our lives to bring us to faith in Christ. And Lord, help us to be able to just continue to trust you no matter what our circumstances might be. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to do that. A prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm sinful. I have not measured up to what has been required of me. I have not really put my faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So I want to receive him as my Savior. I know that he paid for my sins on the cross, and I want to receive him as my Savior. I want to commit my life to him as Lord of my life for the rest of my days. If you want to talk in more detail about that, you can make it on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website.